imagine you're a train engine and you can pull like 10 carts behind you. And those 10 carts can be all the things that are important to you. And then you can go where you want to go, but you can also drop half of them or like drop all of them except for one. And you'll just go there a lot faster. Either way you'll get there, but like, it's your choice. Like, are you going to get there with one cart and drop everything and go fast and get there? Or are you going to like take the long route? That was Donna Vakalis, two-time Olympian for Canada in women's modern pentathlon on this episode of Silver is the New Gold. I'm Karen Lonso, and this is Silver is the New Gold, a podcast that shares stories and insights about women's participation in sports after 35. Today, I'm chatting with Donna Vakalis, two-time Olympian in the sport of modern pentathlon. I met Donna several years ago after I started fencing. Epe is one of the five disciplines in modern pentathlon, so I've had the chance to train with her and I've always been really impressed by her ability to be warm and open off the piste and then turn into a fierce competitor once the mask is on. Her road to the Olympics is interesting and unique. Here she is to share her story. Hi, Donna. Welcome to Silver is the New Gold. Hello. Thanks so much for uh, coming on and chatting with me today. Thank you for chatting to me about this. This is, I don't know, I've listened to a couple episodes now of your podcast, and I feel like it really fills a need that we don't hear these kinds of conversations often, and it's really good stuff. So I'm excited to be here. All right. Let's get started. So First, um, you are an Olympian in the sport of modern pentathlon. So please just describe the sport of modern pentathlon for our listeners who aren't familiar with it and uh, what it is about the sport that you love so much. Modern pentathlon has five disciplines, and that's why it's called the pentathlon. It has roots in the ancient Olympic Games, so there were five disciplines that uh, they used to that used to comprise the ancient pentathlon, and so when they reinvented the games for the modern era, and so we're thinking, you know, late 1800s, they redefined the modern pentathlon, and that's what I do. So it, the first time it was held was in 1912, and the five disciplines haven't changed since then. Since 1912, it's fencing um, using an epee for those who are <laughs> who care, swimming. Um, show jumping, but on an unfamiliar horse, not your own, cross-country running, and shooting. Uh, However, those five disciplines kind of got reorganized over the years in the last century. So by the time I competed in it, it was still those five, but the format was uh, basically one day instead of five days or whatever they did at the start. And the shooting is now laser shooting, and the shooting is combined with the running. So picture kind of like a summer biathlon, but instead of ski and shoot, you run and shoot. And so as if training for five sports isn't hard enough, you don't get to choose your horse? Yes. <laughs> so that, yeah. So there's a there's pros and cons to not choosing your own horse. The idea behind it, so the the, the reason that it's like that is so that the athletes competing in modern pentathlon don't have to own a horse, don't have to worry about the logistics of transporting a horse to all the competitions. And in some ways, it's also an attempt to make it 
to, to kind of distribute the fairness mm-hmm. because you can't just buy an amazing horse and someone who can't afford an amazing horse would be at a disadvantage. Sure. Kind of, you're supposed to level the field. It also just makes for a very completely different style of riding. Kind of like imagine showing up at your event. Let's say you're, I don't know, a doubles player in some other sport like tennis, but you never get to um, meet your partner until the day of the event. In fact, until 20 minutes before. So there's a different way of collaborating, of communicating, right? You have to make your communications loud and crude. And there's a little <laughs> bit of that in, in riding in pentathlon. You have to be very, then the equivalent of like kind of um, very <laughs> uh, loud and clear with your signals. And, you know, that's very, it's, it changes the discipline of riding a little bit. How did you get your start in pentathlon and and why do you like what is it about pentathlon that you you love so much? I mean, I didn't realize I was starting in pentathlon when I was. I think that's kind of for any multi-sport athlete, you could kind of define the start at different points in time. So maybe if you're a multi-sport athlete in triathlon, you might start off as a swimmer and then add something later. It's similar in pentathlon. No one's no one that I know of ever anywhere has ever just started all five. Uh, like out of out of from from nothing, you usually come from a background where you're doing at least one other sport, and that's sort of like a feeder sport okay. into pentathlon. So for me, the feeder sports there were two of them because I I was a competitive swimmer and I was in Pony Club, which is a um, an organization that's uh, predominantly in kind of I'd say the Br- Britain and former British colonies, and we're in Canada, so <laughs> there's a big great pony club organization and they they do sports and they kind of they do a version of pentathlon so <clears throat> i came at it through riding and swimming but maybe the reason that i liked it before i knew what i was doing was uh, it's it's a very i guess like a personalized answer it won't really be very generalizable but i really loved the idea of doing multiple things that were seemingly um, contra- contradictory mm-hmm. and just seeing like if to be like the best all around in things that aren't really meant to be packaged together. Yeah, that make that makes sense because you wouldn't think that fencing has really that much to do with swimming, right? Yeah. Like in general, you can always do one thing and find some transferable skill to something else. But that amount of transferableness is quite small in the pentathlon sports. Like sure, if you're a if you're a really good swimmer, some of that fitness translates to fencing. Mm, but not much. <laughs> not much <laughs> from swimming is going to help you like from all kinds of things like swimming requires you know you to have uh like flexible ankles i don't know and in pentathlon you know your 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 basis like you you'd want to have really strong uh not too flexible ankles i uh, that's like a silly example yeah, but there's I mean, tons of there's a spectrum of how much is transferable and by design most of the skills within pentathlon there's not that much transferability there's not zero. Like you're going to get a, a really strong basis um, that's going to go across all five. So that makes training really, really 
challenging when it's not yeah. like you're doing fencing training. You're like, well, I got two hours of fencing training in today and I'm really tired. So I feel like I've gotten X amount of swimming training on top of that because, but no, because actually it's yeah. so different that the two hours of training <laughs> in fencing, mm-hmm. you can't just say, well, I did the two hours of fencing and I'm really tired, but it's okay because it's still going to help with my fen- my swimming because it's probably maybe not very true. <laughs> Yes, the sim like what you said is correct. The simple <laughs> version is that in fact you almost need to train for all five without taking the others into account. But of course, that would be insane. Like for, as you get to the higher levels, you know how much work an elite swimmer puts in. Mm-hmm. You cannot fit five of those regimens into one week. So what you do is take every possible gain that is transferable and you really get really efficient at um, working those gains and really efficient also at avoiding um, accidentally impacting one of the other sports by, for example, training so much in one that it helps in the one, but it costs you because you're tired for the next. And so it's a game of optimization, not maximization. You cannot maximize each one but you can optimize across all five. So if you had a really hard workout in the run on uh, Monday, maybe you schedule your hardest runs Monday, Thursday, Saturday, and you schedule your hardest swims Tuesday, Friday, Sunday, or something like that. Because you know that to do the hard on the same day will mean you can't go as hard and one of them will suffer. Are they all weighted the same? In in the competitions, are, are all the sports we you get so you, the scoring is you get x amount of points based That's on right. your performance. So I'm not sure how the point system works exactly, but yes. do they all weigh the same? Like the amount of points you get in swimming is equal to the you know amount of points. So if you come in first in fencing, yeah. it's the same as if you came in first in swimming. It's the same as if you came in first in a question. Or are they do some sports have higher value? It's than very. So it's an imperfect attempt at making them all equal. But (laughs) depending on who you ask, because there's no objective way to make them actually worth the exact same. For example, uh, the swim distance is 200 meters. And if you look at the distribution of swims and you say, okay, well, someone who's one second slower, how many points is that worth versus the uh, rider who gets a perfect round and then the distribution of riders who have like one fall, mm-hmm. like knockdown or a refusal. How do you like, how in the world do you make those distributions equivalent in a way it's mm-hmm. a stats problem. Um, but over the decades, it's just been worked out by trial and error and the point system has evolved to try to make it as even as possible. And it's roughly a thousand points per discipline and it's roughly, but very, very roughly like a, a, pretty solid performance is a thousand points. And then you can go up or down from there for a standout performance or a crappy one. Did the sports that you started in end up being your strengths in pentathlon later? I'm just curious to know if like what you're naturally (laughs) um, drawn to comes more naturally in terms of training and performance. Yeah. uh, it, It turned out that running and shooting were my strengths and 
my starter sports, swimming and riding, what that allowed me to do um, was to sort of coast on those and not train as hard. I loved, I would have loved to train every day in riding, uh, but, but again, to optimize, it doesn't make sense. So, so same for swimming. I would have loved to join the swim team for all their meets and all their practices and, but I couldn't. So, um, but because I had a swimming background and a riding background, I actually trained less in those. And as a result, my results in those weren't my strongest, but it was way more efficient than, um, because my talents turned out to be in the run and the shoot. So I was able to kind of spread things around, um, bring up the running and the shooting really quickly. Um, and my worst sport, <laughs> fencing, <laughs> is the one that um, took in a way the most time and effort, um, but I couldn't let it drag me down either. So so like it was a bit of a game um, of finding out where you can get the best of yourself with the least amount of inputs. And I'm just really curious about this. So... <laughs> So in the running, the running and the shooting is the last and you run, you do a 3k run and you have like in the skiing biathlon, you have targets that you have to shoot at. That's right. Um, if you excel at running and shooting, like do they do a staggered start depending on what your points are going into the run? That's exactly right. Or do you right. have like a time? To, okay. There's a staggered start where the first person, whoever's in first, and by the way, mm -hmm. the run and shoot is last in the order of things. So right. let's say you and I are competing and you're in first, and I'm in second. And I'm the difference between us is, let's say, 10 points. Um, there's one second per point that's given for this last event. So if I start 10 seconds behind you, but I finish next to you, I've caught up 10 seconds, I've caught up 10 points, and now our final score would end up being tied. So you know exactly oh, where okay. you are in the final order because of a staggered start. Oh, okay, okay. That makes sense. So if you excel at writing and shooting, you can potentially make up a ton of time. Yes. Yeah. So it's probably good that you came to be <laughs> very, very good at those two. <laughs> it really, it helps. But it's psychologically very hard um, to always start at the bottom because I, fencing sure. is also the first one. So I, I never... I never started at the top. Like the, my competitions always began with playing catch up from my fencing result. Okay. Yeah. Your path to the Olympics, that was um, a bit unique because um, you started in sports pretty early in childhood, like 10 or 12, I think, right? But you, you stopped um, or you dropped out of at least pentathlon or competing for 10 years and you didn't return until you were 25. So why... Did you stop initially? And after such a long time, what drew you back into the sport? I, I thought of myself as retiring when I was 15. So I was like, I'm <laughs> retiring. Right. Yeah. Um, and I had been <laughs> training since I was five. So okay. I, but I started in swimming when I was like competitive swimming, you know, the first swim meets when I was six and kind of go going on from there and swimming quite seriously. Um, and, you know, when you're young, maybe it's a sign of being young that by the time you're 15, you feel old, especially in sports mm -hmm. where everyone around you is measuring, you know, in some sports, if you're 15, 16, you kind of know if you're on your way to the Olympics or not. You kind of have a sense of where you are nationally and internationally. Um, and I had that sense of like, I could be a national swimmer, but I'm probably not going to be an Olympic swimmer. 
And I also had an acute sense of uh, um, social justice. And because I was 15, uh, for one, I decided that was very old. That was my swimmer brain saying that, I think. And my social justice (laughs) brain was saying, like, the world is pretty clearly in need of some major social justice action. And Mm -hmm. it's not happening. And why would I spend my time stirring chlorine when I could be out there on the like fighting the good fight. And so uh, that was my reasoning at the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's very interesting, like what I could have, what kind of advice I could have given myself if I could go back and say like, these things are not incompatible. And like, there's, there's all kinds of things I didn't know. Um, anyway. I think that's understandable though. I think when you're when you're 15 and I remember being pretty adamant about some of my personal opinions and your worldview is just very small. I mean even if you've gone to even if you've gone to international competitions as a a youth athlete or a young athlete, you're still pretty much shepherded around by adults and you don't have a lot of autonomy. So how do you, you know, <laughs> it's understandable. Like, how would you, how would you be able to, to make those decisions at 15 to be? Yes. Yeah. There was so into, much I didn't know. Yeah. yeah of uh, course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. So I retired and that was, you know, that wasn't like, uh, I'm putting this on pause. That was like, this is now I'm going to do what I really love, which was, um, I loved skateboarding. I loved, like just um really being, yeah are you watching side note are you watching skateboarding in the olympics then are well, you I'm not, I'm, not, about that? <laughs> I'm not i i don't i'm i'm not watching it i'm not i'm not jazzed about anymore like following it uh closely i don't follow it anymore um i still have dreams like skateboarding dreams where i'm actually skating but i don't no i don't follow it i don't really follow any sports that to be honest um, sorry. All right, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> uh, All right. Back unless, to the original yeah, question. yeah, yeah. Unless, unless like a friend is competing, then I'm there for sure. Oh, okay. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So I did what I loved, and I learned a lot of other things. And but I was definitely not as an athlete. I ran for my high school, but it was not like there was no serious training. It was just joy and. I also, yeah, so so that just kind of uh, went on and on. And I was also taking school pretty seriously, but only insofar as it could get me closer to like environmentalism. And I ended up, of all the social justice kind of ways you could go, I really, the, my jam was really um, like basically environmentalism, I guess you mm-hmm. could say. And in particular, I ended up gravitating towards green green buildings, but I mean, built environment. So green cities. And that became the focus of me at architecture school. And that's also the time architecture school where I was finally mature enough to think like, maybe I'm really miss training so much. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was the training that I missed, not the competition, but I, I missed the, that, well, I think people who love training just know this. Like there's so many perks, mental, like mental perks of having that structure and having that clear feedback loop that is really fast of like your progression. 
um, oh, it's so, uh, it's like so tantalizing. And I missed that. And I also mm-hmm. realized, so now, you know, 10 years later or whatever, 20, I guess 25, 26, I also realized like, hey, I'm not that old. <laughs> like <laughs> maybe it's not too late to like get a little more serious about these things that I love. Um, why not? And also, ugh, it was such a good antidote to the lifestyle of architecture school. I think most people who have like who work, you know, full time jobs or work a lot of hours, and especially desk jobs, can relate to this. Like it just feels so good to get out and move. And that was exactly, I had an excuse now because I was training again. So I was like joined uh, a triathlon team to get in the runs and the swims. And I joined the fencing club at the university. It also um, was very accessible, which is a really important thing. Mm -hmm. Like it was free uh, or almost free, like very low cost to do it through the university. Um, And that was a huge, I think, barrier um, otherwise I couldn't have paid like full club fees and stuff to just, to just do something I, on a whim that I loved. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I started training again and I just got like, you know, results probably because I loved it so much. Like I was so into it that, um, I accelerate, like, uh, improved very, very, very quickly. Um, and it didn't hurt that I had all this like prior, um, training under my belt. Yeah. From way back when. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And I totally get that needing to get out of your, you know, work because, you know, I'm a, I do web developments. I'm, I'm a computer and insane amount of hours per day and sport is the way for me to just engage with my environment and like feel all like the parts of my body, like physically and mentally and just be away from tech and just be totally integrated with, with what I'm doing and what's around me. I mean, if if I'm zoned in and I'm focused on what I'm doing, I'm still like engaged in an environment in a very like natural way, I think. Yes. You're making me think Yes. Yes. I'm thinking about what you're saying and thinking about the difference between being focused on solving like a a coding problem or something in front of you on the screen Mm -hmm. and the kind of way that engages your attention in a kind of like you're almost in a mental map inside your head and then versus um, fencing where you're standing there uh, and there's just such a penalty to not being present. Yeah. (laughs) If you know, like if you're away for a split second, then you can, that can be the difference between getting something good or losing. And, um, neither of those is like a hundred percent on one side or the other, but there's, they're so different and there's such different types of focus. And it just would be like, if you're missing one of those, it's like such, such a, like a plain diet, mental diet that you're missing, like this whole other world of tastes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you were saying you were working towards a master's in architecture and then you started to put more training and and competing and then the Olympics started to become a possibility, right? So when did you actually start to, to realize that the Olympics could actually become a reality? Yeah. Um, 2006. So like the year later, like literally my 
progress within a year or two was kind of like it just shot up and that almost right away I was kind of I actually made a kind of a funny bet with someone we were in um we were somewhere in the summer working on a side project uh and I said to them uh, like yeah anyway it's it's not I'm not telling the story very well but basically <laughs> the point is that like at that point I was just getting back into running and I was you know not on a team I was just running every day for an hour while we were working on this fun movie project we were making a movie and I was like going out for my runs in the morning before working on the set and I made a bet with them at that point um, like, yeah, I'll go to the Olympic, the next Olympics or something. I forget what the bet really entailed, <laughs> but it was said in the sense of like, that would be such a crazy outcome because it's 2005 now and the next ones in are Beijing's in 2008. In 2008. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, but then in those next few years, I went from just like those one hour runs for fun in the morning to joining the U of T team and actually getting proper track training and like joining the fencing team and actually getting back into it and then competing at nationals in 2006 and being good enough to be asked to, to join the national team. And the only thing that I had uh, in mind as like a, I knew in that point, I was like, I could do this. I know what, uh, I know what my times are. I know what my scores are. I'm pretty sure I can compete and qualify for the Olympics. Um, the question is that it's not so straightforward. You don't just have to be um, good enough. You have to go to the right competitions. You have to go to the qualifying competitions. You can't show up and not be on a national team. So there's some kind of processes that take time. You have to qualify to qualify to qualify. Mm -hmm. And that if you start backing up in time, the games are in 208, but the qualifiers are largely in 2007. And to be in those competitions, you might have to qualify in 2006. So the timing was pretty tight. That was my the question and I had in my head was like, can I logistically do this? <laughs> yeah. And and so you originally tried to make the Greek Olympic team to try to make that happen? Yeah. So I started, so I, so I had a chat with the national team, Canadian team, mm -hmm. and they said like, they were really, they were great. They were very open. And the head coach, his name is Philip Waffler at the time, the coach, he was really a wonderful coach and he was Swiss by chance and he, oh. but he was the Canadian team coach and um, he and I had a really transparent talk. Like I said, I have two citizenships. Um, if I come on the Canadian team, can I go to these competitions to qualify? And, and also can I get some funding? Cause I'm paying my own way. I'm not mm -hmm. a kid or who has parents who can pay for their club fees or whatever. Um, and <laughs> I have to pay my rent. I have to keep a job to pay all of this stuff. It's going to be a real, real. <laughs> yes, yes. And so like, you know, can I pay, can I afford to go through the Canadian system and still have a chance? And he was pretty honest with me. He's like, we have no funding and um, it's probably too late. You won't be eligible to compete at the qual at the, the qualifiers that were the Pan Am Games. So there's a chance you could qualify, but you'd have to do it via this kind of like harder route. And yeah, then there's no money. But mm -hmm. he was very supportive. Like we would love and I'll help you on mm -hmm. the team. And I hope that you, you know, train with us. 
And then I checked in with the Greek team and said, do you want a walk-on athlete? And I'll come and train there. And would you be able to support my training somehow? Because I don't have the funds. And would I be allowed and eligible to compete and to go to European championships? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is ostensibly a harder route, (laughs) but but at least it was available. It wasn't too late to try to qualify. Um, and they said yes. And so with, I was like kind of thinking it over. Um, and in the background of my, my decision was like, this is great. I can live in Greece, which is where my dad is from. I can, you know, be immersed in the language and finally pick it up again. I had kind of abandoned my Greek when I was little. So it seemed like a really cool way to do it. And Mm -hmm. so I moved to Greece. I competed to join the national team. I qualified and then I, you know, started going to international competitions and it was really late in the game. And there were a bunch of reasons why I missed some really key competitions, which um, ended up impacting where I sat in the world rankings and on the world rankings, I was one short of going to the Olympics and it's a whole messy story. That's like another, I don't know, hour long conversation, but um, (laughs) some of the athletes on the men's and women's roster who were given spots based on um, their regions. So the Olympics has a qualification Mm -hmm. system that's regional uh, yep. that way you get representation from all the parts of the world because sure. they're not necessarily balanced, um, ability wise, right? Like you right. could have many, many amazing people at sport X from one part of the world. And then if you just had the top people compete, they would all be from that part of the world. It wouldn't feel very Olympics-y. <laughs> right. And that would be, fencing yeah. would be an excellent example of that where yeah. most of European the Olympic and, yeah. field would be European. Exactly. Yes. So if they didn't do that. Yeah. So this this is um this is the same a similar story for pentathlon. And there was a there was a there was a one territory in particular that didn't have strong athletes that entire cycle. And so those two athletes who are going actually technically had never met the minimum requirement. Mm. And so this is a whole other ball of wax because the international association did not want that pointed out and went to great lengths to sort of obscure that fact. Sure. And the um, there were some countries who had a lot to gain from pointing that out, and namely the ones who were next on the list to qualify. And so that happened to be Britain for the men and Greece for the women. So that was a British athlete and myself. And so we went ended up going to the IOC, to the kind of inter, or the international court for sport. Mm-hmm. And the British won their case. So the British guy got to go and we lost our case. So I didn't get to go. And that was, that's like a very short summary of a very like really crazy time in my life in terms of like seeing all these other sides to sport and seeing what kinds of technical or political elements come to bear on who gets to go and who gets to compete and yeah, it was very interesting, but yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's crazy. <laughs> but on, on the flip side of that, um, <laughs> you probably gained like incredible experience training oh, in, yeah. uh, in Greece and against the Europeans, maybe than you might have got here. Yes. And I had very different opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. 
And and so when you did find out that you qualified for running 2012 with Team Canada, yes, how did how did that feel after you had been through all of the crazy politics and just missing it with Greece and and knowing <laughs> probably better than most people just how much luck and politics like outside of your control is is involved like how did it feel when you when you qualified for London after that I had a very not binary process of qualifying there wasn't until the very end there was at the very end there was a moment where yes I was like for sure I've qualified but it was very gradual because you I was building up points all season by competing at different uh, world cups and you move up and down on the world ranking list. And the world ranking list closes in June, the year of the Olympics. Because um, mm-hmm. that, that's the that's one way to qualify. Um, it's The other way is through this regional system. So you either win your regional area or you yeah. go through the world ranking. So because I was going for the world ranking, my position on that list, you know, is moving up or down. But even if you're, I don't know, 25th or something, you're not totally sure that you're safe because some other person could have a really great result at the final competition and jump up the list and you might jump down the list. And so it wasn't until the final competition and that list closed that I was like, okay, I'm safe. Like I definitely have qualified. (laughs) And it was kind of, it was, I remember that moment because I crossed the finish line of that competition. I had a solid result. It was a World Cup in China, I think, or a World Cup final. And I I don't know what I came, let's say 16th or something. And I um, I was solidly in. And so was uh, a few other athletes who were in the same boat. We were all trying to keep our position on the list. And one of them was the Irish athlete. And I remember her, like us coming up to each other at the end. And it didn't matter what country you were from. You were just so sympathetic. Like we made it, like we yeah, did it. We've yeah, all yeah. been trying to do this all year. We've all seen each other and competed against each other, but ultimately like we're pulling for the same thing. Mm-hmm. And there was this very sweet, um, cross cult, like cross country congrats, c- congratulations amongst all the ones who had made it. So I remember having like shots with the Brazilian team that night, nice. like, we were just like, woohoo, we made it. <laughs> and like, yeah. Um, and also it's a time that's bittersweet because, that that very defining moment for you is the defining moment for someone else who didn't make it. And until then they had a chance. And yeah. I re- like, I, I could so relate to that. And for multiple sports, like seeing all my friends who that I trained with in say swimming miss their shot around the same time when the, you know, they find out and they're off by, you know, millionths of a second or something it's so hard because there's nothing really that says they're okay ostensibly there's something that says this person's better than that person but that is also a statistical kind of game where a competition Mm -hmm. held the week before would have yielded the inverse result and that's why sport is kind of I don't know tantalizing because you don't know the outcome like you really don't. No. Um, yeah. But it also means that the outcome on any given day it's not as um, we like it. We like to think of it as like yes, this is the best person they merit going. But no, the they on a week later they would not have been the one to go, and vice versa. The person who didn't make it was so close they're just as good. Like they merit it just as much. 
it's really hard. Do do you feel an extra like bond or is there kind of like extra camaraderie between the people who are on the cusp <laughs> compared to the I people felt who are it. at the top? <laughs> I felt that way and um I would say yes and it's and it is really cool. It is international. There is this feeling of like we're we're in this we're in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're there's something that we get about and maybe I don't know what a proper analogy of it is, but like it's like maybe something across families where like everyone who's a youngest sibling kind of gets it, or I don't know. Like there's this kind of like understanding that cuts across teams. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So you talked a bit uh, earlier about how you have to kind of organize your training around getting the five sports in. But to sort of help with your competition experience, you couldn't just limit yourself to pentathlon, especially if you're training at home because the number of competitions are limited. So you would sign up for fencing competitions like standard fencing competitions. And I'm guessing you probably did some track and um, swimming as well. So, of course, as a competitor, you want to win. (laughs) Um, but how different were these competitions from how the events work in, in pentathlon and how did you adjust your expectations and outcome goals for these events? So for example, let's look at fencing because fencing in pentathlon is a bit different than standard epe where all of your bouts go to one light only. So, um, you know, just because I, I, I know fencing, so were you more concerned about Well, obviously I want to win because I'm a competitor, but most importantly, I want to make sure that in eight out of nine or eight out of 10 of my bouts, I'm always the one getting the first light. Or did you just go into it being like, regardless of the the beginning of the bout, I want to be the one who wins at the end? That's a really astute question because um, the short answer is yes, it there are differences um, that I like the strategy is different. What mm-hmm. I was trying to get out of it was different. And um, where I would say the, the thing that um, the way I would use a fencing competition, kind of use it as a tool differently, wasn't so much about like, I don't know. It was, it was kind of for, for practicing certain things like layering on to a competition practice, but I think fencers do that too. They might layer on to a given competition that like, okay, at this competition, I'm really working on, um, I don't know, whatever I'm trying to focus on right now. Like, um, I'm I'm having a hard time picking things because there's so many things to pick from, but like, (laughs) I know like I've been like really working my footwork. And so I'm going to remind myself after every bout, like, did I do X or Y? Yes or Mm -hmm. no. And I don't know. And so pentathlon, you're layering on those things too, um, to each competition or each bout, but they just happen to be different. Like they're more Mm pentathlon-y. So like you said, it's something about maybe winning the first hit or um like maybe like trying to get the first hit within the first 30 seconds or um some kind of little game that you layer on top of that will help you 
with your ultimate goal, which as you know, is, is not to win at that competition, right. but to use that competition to win at a pentathlon. It's very complicated. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm thinking of like, like, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it is. It's like, an, it's like another level of strategizing. It's like take normal strategizing and then add another and try You're and adding ex- another ex- time layer to it. Yeah. 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 And and try to extract out the components that you need for pentathlon, which might not be the same for the actual, yeah. you know, race it, you're doing, whether it's Right. You know. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, you're right. Because I mean I think in pentathlon even, yeah. yeah, sorry. No, I was just gonna say, because I think even even running, you could almost play the game like okay i'm going like even if you don't stay or start in a 3000 meter race or a 5k or whatever you're trading at but you could you could play the game where it's like i'm gonna go really slow for like the first 10 10 seconds and then i'm gonna see if i can catch up like you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so it's just an extra layer of strategizing and that's that's and it's not just the complexity, but it's also ad- additional mental preparation and probably a little bit more mentally exhausting on top of on top of what you would do for a one event type of training. You know what I mean? Maybe. I don't yeah. I to be honest, I haven't reflected that hard <laughs> on this particular question. So and I, I, I I'm will. like intrigued. <laughs> I'm intrigued by this. And of course, after this conversation, I'll be falling asleep tonight and be like <laughs> Oh, and I'll think, oh, I wish I had that insight in the moment so I could have said that. Oh, damn. But but yeah, nothing insightful here right now. All right. So so talk about your first Olympic experience in London. What was your favorite part of the Olympic experience? I don't think that I had the same kind of I didn't like the things that float my boat are probably not the things that float the boat of the typical Olympian, maybe because I was a bit older for my first Olympics. Mm-hmm. So I went to London when I was 32 and Rio when I was 36. And I think I just have a different attitude than some people about the Olympics in general. Because mm-hmm. I totally get that there's this kind of festive like birthday party feeling to it. Um, but I guess like if that was the case, I would be one of those people who is like, I don't really care for birthday parties, but I totally get why someone else does. Um, so it's mm-hmm. kind of like being at a place where everyone's like, it's a birthday party and it's like amazing <laughs> and it's so cool. And I would have been the one who is like, um, I, kind of like I appreciate that stuff but what I like the most about the Olympics are the things that are most like the world championships is that you know you have I wanted really good facilities with a really good chance to do my best and like all the things you need in place because of course a huge competition takes so much effort to organize and like pull it off correctly and that is amazing that we even have that in our world. And like as an athlete, the chance to participate on an awesome like course with awesome refs and awesome organizers and in pentathlon, and that means like good horses with a good course and a you know a good pool and a good running track and all of these things in place. Um, so like I loved at London that the running course was held uh, at it wasn't held right in the main 
part of the games facilities. The facility was off where the dressage riding was, and it um, was near the Meridian line. And so they actually had the Meridian line was part of the run course and oh. we each loop we crossed over it that's as cool. we were like running in this kind of historic place wow. it was amazing yeah so that is like that's really cool to me I cared about stuff I think like that's that cool I think. Too. yeah yeah um so the, yeah so the things that popped for me were um also the way the Olympic Village was organized to have you know you're transplanted into this world where everything is shuttle buses and free bicycles and everyone's walking or biking or busing around. And it's kind of idyllic, this like wonderful mm-hmm. urban space. And yeah, just that experience was also very uh, cool. So what were the successes and failures that you learned from 2012 that you took into Rio 2016 for competition? Oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> I mean, and so when I finished 2012, I was also not, I did not set my sights on 2016. I set my sights on having a really fun cross-training year, which I knew would be beneficial no matter what my ultimate decision was. But I just said, I'm not going to decide right now. Either way, whether I'm going to keep going or stop, I want to have a year where I train but cross-train. So I'm going to do like Nordic skiing and stuff like that. And um, I did that. And so after that year, um, but that's like the kind of example of a thing that you can only do by stepping back and having a bigger sense of like, what can I do? How can I train with purpose? Like have a grander plan with like – you know yourself so much better. There's so many, there's so many little things you learn that you might not put your finger on, you know, on three major things, but it might be 20 little things that mm-hmm. all stack up to give you that new edge. I was such um, such a better athlete in the next four years for multiple reasons that had to do with knowing myself and knowing how to leverage training. And, um, I definitely didn't have more time to train because I was doing Possibly my PhD. Less. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I was, yeah. So I was, so I was at the, so the timing was such that I, um, for the first Olympics round, like 2012, I had been working in an architecture landscape architecture firm. And for the next sort of chunk from 2012 to 2016, I was a PhD student, but kind of like we said earlier, there's some, there's a, like a very sympathetic relationship between doing like student desk work and then getting out there and um, being totally into your training. Mm-hmm. So I benefited from that again. I benefited from all the awesome support from my university, which I was so grateful for. And that can be, especially when you're um, training intensely in multiple sports, you really need a really good like physio and you really need a really good like (laughs) MT and people that you can, you know, it's not the kind of thing where you can just book in two weeks in advance because you come home from a workout the night before and you strained something. And the next day you have another hard workout. You need to, if possible, get into the physio the next day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And anyway, all of those little things I benefited from being a student and from having this perspective. And it really added up, um, 
and kind of strengthen things. But it, yeah, it was a, it was a mishmash. There was stuff going both ways too. Like there are pros and cons of like the way I did things the next way around. So you were working towards a PhD in civil engineering, right? Yes. Um, but honestly, like, how did you find the motivation to make it all work? And how did you support yourself? Because from experience, I know that in grad school, you make like $2 an hour. <laughs> yeah. And I stopped at a master's. So um, yeah. training, competitions, very, very costly, probably yes. even more so because you have to go to more because you have more sports. Or maybe yep. not necessarily more, but you have to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. It depends on how well your sport is able to fund you at certain levels. So, yes, yeah. I get it. You're totally right. I mean, I'm glossing over a lot of hard things. <laughs> like, yeah. I, um, I maxed out my student line of credit. I maxed out like two credit cards. Like, in my head, I wasn't so stressed about it because. I have this sense of I will be able to pay it back later. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge place of coming from a place of privilege. I think if I had been really poor growing up, which I wasn't, like we were middle class. And I think that played a huge role because I had this kind of sense of a social safety net to catch me. Like I was never mm -hmm. going to starve. There were months where I didn't know how I would pay the rent, but I knew somehow like I could <laughs> yeah. max out my credit card to pay for my flight to the competition. And then, you know, like I'd apply to a zillion different grants for mm -hmm. things. And I knew I had my PhD scholarship, which would like, that was like that was, that was pretty um, critical. Decent. Yeah. That, yeah. It was very critical and very decent. You know, like if I lived really cheaply, I could live on a PhD scholarship. I think you'd live very frugally and you yes. could not be a pentathlete, but then <laughs> you can make ends meet other ways. And I was so lucky, like in the nick of time, things came my way in a way. And I had some really awesome things come my way. Like one of the hugest um, examples, like a best example of what happened is a friend of mine who was a triathlete. Um, and she was a, uh, like my age, slightly older, but in a position in life where she had, she was like secure in her housing. She's a pro triathlete. Mm -hmm. And she said, we would like to invite you to live with us and not oh, pay nice. rent. Um, and like stuff like that happened along the way where I was, it was such a relief. And um, and then like also such a spark because you're like that feeling of people wanting you to succeed and yeah. not just it, you know, cause uh, I'm, I know I'm going on and on, but one of the things we don't really talk about is how selfish it is to be an athlete. And like, that's part of why it gets harder and harder. Cause as you get older, I think you're less, and, and I don't, I'm not saying selfish in a bad way. I'm just saying it's like harder and harder to be very self-focused and self-improvement yeah. driven because society around you no longer tolerates that. They're like, no, okay, you can do that while you're in university. You can like self-improve, but then you're, then it's over. Then you should just like become a cog or like uh, whatever. But I and, think also um, as you get older, your <laughs> worldview expands too. And you recognize that, yes, that yeah. you, you have to... Not that you have to, well, you should pay it forward, I suppose, but you, you also have a, a better appreciation of other people have to make ends meet as well. Like, you know totally. what I mean? Um, yes. People may and not be able to financially support you if they've got two kids or if their partner's 
out of work and um, maybe yes. they're doing their own grad educate, you know, graduate education. Yes. You, you just, I think you start to just understand that, that all of the um, ways that people supported you, it's not that they may not support you emotionally, but the actual maybe physical and financial support, you, you kind of understand that it may not be possible. Yes. I'm glad you said that too, because it made me also want to add as a corollary that some 15-year-olds don't take that for granted. They're not entitled or they don't feel like mm -hmm. they can just go out and work on themselves um, because they're very acutely aware of that from a young age. And some people come to it later of this awareness of like of uh, all the things you said. And yes, I, I feel like as an athlete or part of what drives some or what drove what drove me as an athlete is also this appeal of um, focusing on on wanting to improve, which I see as like a selfish thing, but not always in a bad way. But also finding ways to do it in ways where I could contribute um, mm -hmm. and like pay it forward or pay it out or make the world a better place. And when I was younger, those two things were totally in conflict in my mind. Like I'm either contributing and helping others, or I'm um, you know, doing this thing that I love, which is to stir chlorine. And th those things are mutually exclusive. Um, <laughs> and the challenge is like finding ways to do them both. When you retired from after, after Rio, you were still working on your PhD at the time. Did you experience uh, a crash at all? Or, or did having your PhD kind of allow you a path path forward out of competition into like the next phase of your life? It was a little bit messy in my case um, because I did have such a good year in 2016 that I felt like I wanted to um, can keep riding that a bit and have one more year of competition to see what I could do. Mm -hmm. But I was very realistic with the demands of um, not going further into debt and putting, I had put a pause on the PhD work for the months leading into the Olympics and said, I like, told everyone, I think the best thing to do is just to take this um, time to just focus and then jump back into the work when I get back. And so I had this promise to them and to myself to really like hit, hit the ground running fast and hard on the mm -hmm. PhD and finish it up which is in direct conflict with like continuing this pace of competing and training. It was a real temptation to see what I could do if I just kept going for one year. And yeah. there are so many little wrinkles. Like uh, for our sport, you have one shot per year at getting funding and that's the world championships. You have okay. to come in the top 16. And if you don't, you don't get any funding. And if you do, you get really decent funding. And I was so, I was so, far in debt that it was really tempting to go to the next worlds. I had had such a strong buildup. Some of the gains that you experience from really good training only come months later. So I was expecting, mm. I had been kind of going up and up and up and I was expecting months later after the Olympics to really have my best competitions. That's I think exactly what would have happened if I had the chance to just keep training. So that was a real hard decision was to say like, can I see what I can really do, but delay all this other important stuff that I promised myself I would do. Mm -hmm. And I tried a half and half year where I 
did all the things that a responsible person should do. I was like finishing up my PhD. I was moving on in other areas of my life too. Like my partner and I were getting really serious and blah, blah, blah. All that stuff is hard to do when you're focused on being an elite athlete. And Ah, so I went to Worlds that year. Yeah. (laughs) So I went to Worlds. I didn't have the season I had thought I could have had, but I kind of gave it a a shot. Um, The Worlds that year were in Egypt. And then that was like, I don't know, it was like a mixed bag of things because I love training and competing. And it was interesting too to see what I could do on half um, I don't, I don't want to say half ass cause that sounds like less than it was. It was a very serious year, but if you can imagine like the most minimal training regimen possible to still compete at the world level, like everything was so scaled back tight. Yeah. So yeah. minimal, so tight that I couldn't like, there was no wiggle room for anything to go a little bit off, I was just like skirting the edge of the minimum amount of training to be able to, to then like pull one out of the bag at the, on the important day. I don't know. It was good to see that 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 ended up not working. Like I didn't come in the top sixteen, so um, it didn't work after all. But I mean, I had such an amazing year of like mm-hmm. moving everything forward. Someone told me this analogy once, a mental coach, where it's like, uh, at least in his mind. If you have somewhere to go, imagine you're a train engine and you can pull like 10 carts behind you. And those 10 carts can be all the things that are important to you. And then you can go where you want to go, but you can also drop half of them or like drop all of them except for one. And you'll just go there a lot faster. Either way you'll get there, but like, it's your choice. Like, are you going to get there with one cart and drop everything and go fast and get there? Or are you going to like take the long route? Yeah, that's a good analogy. Um, Yeah. So this was like me trying to pull all the carts <laughs> and I didn't get there in time because my cutoff was like that last world championships. And then that was it. Um, and then I was totally okay with kind of like toning things down, f- trying to get um, pregnant and trying to kind of um, take on this other role. And so now that you are retired from the Olympics yep. and you're a mother and you're a researcher with uh, focus on sustainable housing, which you've obviously been interested in since you were a kid. How do you plan on keeping sports in your life? Are you going to continue with, with pentathlon or are you going to pick your favorite and uh, continue with that? Or are you going to do something new altogether? Or are you going to go back to skateboarding? Yeah. You can uh-huh. become one of those park uh, style skateboarders. That's- yeah. Um, I'll, so I'll never be like a real park. So I was more of a street skater. Um, and, but yes, uh, but sometimes I do, I would still like, it would be really fun to go on a mini ramp, although not right now cause I'm pregnant. So, um, yeah, funnily enough, my partner gave to me as a birthday present recently, uh, and like he fixed up one of my old skateboards. Oh, for nice. Me. I know. I'm really excited. Um, I'm really excited actually to go as a family and have like yeah. the two little ones with their little helmets and, you know, my partner can skate too. We could all go, like you could see this family of just skating down the street, like ollieing one after the other, like the little ducks. Um, There's <laughs> anyway. a, a movie on Netflix that I watched recently called Skater Girl. Oh. And you should watch it. It's really good. It's a story about um, a girl. can't remember which country she's in, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know if it's Bangladesh or India. I think it might be India. Anyway, they for this movie, they built a very expensive like skate park. 
And now oh. it gets used like all the time. And they've actually had like competitions and they gave this skate park to this village that had not a lot of anything to this movie. Anyway, the story is really good and you'd probably really like it. Oh, I want to see that. Yeah. It's on I Netflix. Mean, a big issue, <laughs> to put it mildly, with the Olympics is that they're in a way like so much embodied energy that goes to waste, like building mm-hmm. all these facilities. And the venues are a huge source of um, carbon. And so, yeah, like thinking about stuff like that, like where do you, where do you put venues like the skate park? And yeah. so that their legacy is a positive one, not a negative one. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That is really fun to think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. And, and that like, yeah. So let's, let's switch gears and, and talk about that for a second, because as a Olympian, and, um, you know, a researcher in sustainable housing and having a master's of architecture, I think that you've got a really interesting perspective on the Olympics and, and sustainability and from, from like the athlete side and from, you know, a professional side. So, I mean, and we, we know the cost of the Olympics has been skyrocketing. Apparently Sochi 2014 was the most expensive and over budget. It took Montreal 30 years to pay off the debt from the 1976 Olympics. Um, The reports from Beijing and Rio, especially where, you know, people have been displaced from their homes for the building of Olympic venues that in large part get abandoned and are left to rubble. So not only is is there potential for a huge like socioeconomic cost, but also a huge environmental cost. And then, of course, there are fewer and fewer countries who are willing to bid on the Olympics mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't want to have the Olympics because of of yes. all of the reasons you know stated yes, above that you just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> yes. exactly. And you know, yeah. in, in fairness, you know, if if for one thing, if you're not interested in sports, um, you may not care so much. But if you have to choose between having a house and watch the Olympics, I feel like a house is a no brainer, right? So, so there are two main proposals about keeping the Olympics more affordable and sustainable and, and you know, theoretically also continuing um, because if we continue to have these issues and if countries don't want to bid, what does that mean for the Olympics? So, so here are the two main proposals. Let's allow multi-city bids. So joint bids would be allowing the use of upgrading an existing infrastructure and um, people would be able to still watch at home and like go to events in, in home country seats so kind of still have that like home country feel, but you could, you know, choose cities that have venues and geography already that, you know, kind of work with, with the events that they're hosting the Euro this year. I think they've done it in a number of years. And especially this one is because of COVID the Euro 2020, they had like six different cities. And so they were kind of all scattered rather than being all in one place. And I think they just, you know, kind of went between like two venues to start. And as they went up in like through the brackets, they would kind of switch to different cities, but they, you know, and soccer is easier because they just use their own venues. But what's nice is they don't have to continually build new structures. And then the second one is to pick a host city, a permanent host city, one for the winter Olympics and one for the summer Olympics. And then you could have countries could still bid and still like set up culturally. And then they, but then the, the money would be put in like, redesigning the courses or or mm-hmm. adjusting them rather than building them all from scratch all the time. Mm-hmm. So from the perspective of an athlete, uh, Olympian, do you 
think either of these options would impact the Olympic experience. Like I'm thinking on the one hand, if you're always going to the same place every time, it would kind of just always be the same place. But the other hand, I mean, if you're, if you're really into it and you've got like mentors and you've watched people through the Olympics and you're like, man, I've competed in the same place as this person who was awesome. And I I beat their world record on the same track. Like that could be really cool too. So what do you think of either of these options? Oh, well, I, I, so what your listeners can't see is I'm like nodding along as you're saying like, (laughs) yes, yes. Um, and because those are basically, those are fantastic ideas. I think, I mean, we need to, we need to be creative with how we Mm -hmm. organize the Olympics. There's nothing that says they have to be done exactly the way they've been done before that. Uh, that we have to, that we can't be critical of and just rethink. And then if the ideas that we've had in the past are still good, then let's keep them. Um, but if they're not working for us, like the building footprint is too big, the travel footprint is huge. Like mm-hmm. let's think hard about how we can make the Olympics awesome and and not do as much harm. <laughs> and so, yeah, so the two ideas you put forward, I haven't, so I, I've been thinking about the sustainability of the Olympics just from like uh, facilities use and mm-hmm. event planning perspective, not hearing these two ideas that you've said until now. Um, I'm just trying to buy myself a little bit of time to keep <laughs> thinking about them because I like them both. And what you said about the second one of having a place that is perennially or quadrennial or biannually revisited, I guess quad, because you'd have two, one for winter, one for summer. Uh, my athlete brain says like the, some of the benefits are exactly that there would be this, uh, this layering of history that mm-hmm. would be happening to revisit the places but of course tweaked, right? There are going to be yeah. improvements. And if anything, the facilities will be so much better because the amount of putting the same amount of money into making a building better rather than that exact same amount of money having to build on a green field, you can just have such better um, tweaks and improvements and you can put so much more money into the little details that sometimes, honestly, when you're building for an Olympics, it's rushed. Yeah. It's very last minute. If you don't finish the building, it's really bad. So you might cut corners at the end and the details get kind of, you know, they, they get brought in after the fact when it's too late. So you would have a chance to go in and make all those details just perfect. And over time, even more perfect. And with, as our knowledge increases, you can make the buildings better and better and better. So I think that's, uh, of course, like there's going to be other things that are not benefits. And um, I don't know if those are as, as big of a deal. Um, cause there is this excitement and novelty of rotating it around mm-hmm. and I have to think about it more, but right now the only places that can bid, they have to have kind of a rich sponsor either from the local government or the national government. And I wonder if you had a kind of dedicated place, if you could pool resources internationally, so it doesn't have to be a place that necessarily is a rich place. And Maybe it is a place that badly needs infrastructure. Maybe it's a place where like right now, um, you know, like people who are displaced um, and have to like have to emigrate um, are like you could focus in around places in the world that 
badly need infrastructure, that have these huge population influxes, but no money to build the infrastructure they need and turn those into those awesome places. And I don't know, just like really thinking about what it could unlock. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's my first thought, (laughs) like how awesome that would be. And then the uh, multiple places I like, because presumably people would have to Uh, just have more chances to celebrate and to do it in a slightly more localized style. Mm -hmm. And you could have way more opportunities for reusing the best facilities possible rather than concentrating some new, I'm going to say bloated facilities in one place that get used less than ideal, like less than they should. Um, You can just be, you know, if, if from a strategy, like the person who's organizing the Olympics, having more, places and more leeway to do it will allow you to make a better design. Um, so that seems positive. I'm not really thinking about the negatives. I'm sure people listening might have a, like a laundry list of negatives, but they're not coming to mind. Um, so, yeah, I think from what I was reading about these two different options is, you know, the, the sites that were, listed as like ideal would be Athens for summer and Switzerland slash Austria for winter. And huh. of course it would be hard for like flights and stuff, but I, I, I wonder too, and this is all hypothetically and unicorns and stuff, but you know, if it didn't cost so much for countries to bid to host the games, never mind put on the games. I mean, you could fully employ people at like a permanent site and yes. you know, you could, be more likely to turn a profit, which you could then, you know, use to subsidize <laughs> your athletes <laughs> and their travel mm-hmm. and, and maybe provide some, you know, some subsidy for family members yeah. of said athletes to travel, especially for mm-hmm. countries who don't live nearby. Like, I don't know. I, I know that a lot of the Olympics is about profit, so I'm not sure how much sharing goes on. But, you know, yes. we're talking unicorns and ideal stuff here but yeah why not though i mean it seems and put like back into uh, and put back into sports and like maybe do a better job at funding the pentathlons and the what are some of the other obscure sports that don't get a lot of funding right yeah maybe make it a bit more a bit more equal in terms of fund distribution if the olympics could could turn profit because i i looked at the list and I, I it's i think it's pretty rare I mean, there's a lot of break-evens and people, you know, other countries have lost money, but actually making a profit is, I think, very challenging. Yeah. And I would, uh, this is maybe being like a little more cynical, but there are people who do profit from the games. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's not the taxpayers. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah there are some big building and often not developers. The athletes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Although I have to say we were treated so well. And I, I, I mean, part of it has to do with which country you're from mm-hmm. and how much money they have to treat your sure. team well, but um, going to the Olympics as part of the Canadian team, it was we were so well taken care of. And of all the competitions I went to, you know, that was the time and place where we were um, we had access to everything we needed, <laughs> as opposed to like when we were off on our own yeah. as a pentathlon team. The rest of the the rest of the quadrennial, <laughs> uh, yeah. but. Might have been nice to have some funding to make the rest of the quadrennial a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice. I mean, we would have had better results at the end of the sure. day, but it's it's so it's not cut and dry. Mm-hmm. I'm very 
uh, cognizant of, you know, it's important to fund our sports. Um, and there are so many important things to fund. So I, I, I get it. Um, it's tough. Um, I just, I think we, it's, the most important thing is to fund our sports so that they are accessible, um, so that you don't have just people from certain, um, from certain neighborhoods or from yeah. certain backgrounds that get to even make it a shot to make it up to the top. Um, that's what would worry me about any funding plan. And even just yeah. general participation at like the youth level so that yes. we have continued participation in the, you know, adult and, and senior level because uh, like we talked about like the camaraderie and the connection and, you know, the physical and the emotional connection and then just the general health benefits of whether it's maybe you like cycling or maybe you like team sports, but you know, if we don't have people coming in in their youth and we don't have people staying in it in their middle age and beyond. <laughs> oh, you're we, so we, right. We They're don't, so we, we, we don't have really that much of a chance of, of propelling people to the Olympic stage, I don't think. Yeah, it's something that probably doesn't get said often enough, but it's something that anyone who has participated in a team is uh, probably well well aware of or appre appreciates on some level is having teammates from different brackets of their life range mm -hmm. or different. And, you know, luckily when, even when I was training at U of T, there was club members who were older, who were still in the training mix. And that, and then I, I mean, I was one of those slightly older athletes too, compared to the kids who were first year university and maybe 17. And we got so much from each other, um, mixing like that. And it was so, I, I, yeah, I, my, I wouldn't love training so much if it was homogenous and just like, uh, not didn't have all those people there from all different ages and different cultural backgrounds. And I, I wonder, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just, I think it's fascinating and I don't know if there's any research on this. I haven't looked it up, but I'm just, but like how much does your cultural background, um, your experience in life express itself in sport and the way that you train and the way that you compete and the way that you hmm. go after your wins? I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. I had only thought about it from the backward position of how grateful I was that sport was a mixer for people mm -hmm. of different political beliefs, different backgrounds. You can like have an honest to goodness mix of, especially, I don't know, maybe it's different now, but um, I'm just imagining places in the States where neighbors can't stand each other because they're of two, two sides of a two party <laughs> problem but um but you know if your mm -hmm. kids are on swim team together and those kids are besties that's something there's a nice mix happening across you know groups when you're in a team training last question although you just said earlier that you don't really follow the, the sports but uh and you did you said no to skateboarding but which events are you going to watch at the games and you cannot say pentathlon <laughs> are you going to watch yes. any olympics I, I will watch something if someone invites me to like a watching party. <laughs> I, I won't turn it on to like to go seek it out. 
But when I do, it's not, uh, I sound like I'm like, uh, I don't know, an ogre or something. But when I, when I do turn it on, like my jaw drops, I'm in awe and I'm so impressed by watching anything. Like I watch the swimmers and I'm like flabbergasted at how, how strong and fast and streamlined they are and how perfect they are. And then I watch the riding and I'm like, wow, look at her, you know, look at her go. And it's so great to see it. But uh, maybe I'm just lazy or something. I wouldn't seek it out because I guess the interest for me in sport was very personal. Sure. And I'm very much into watching my friends do their thing mm-hmm. or or to being a participant in it. But I, I don't get that much from being a spectator, I think. Like yeah, I wouldn't go I to a venue. I would, yeah. yeah. I would much rather read a book and play with – Uh, I was going to say play with my kids (laughs) or like, you know, or like watch or listen to a podcast or like cook a good meal or something with friends. I don't know. I think that's, I think that's fair. There, (laughs) like, I'm not, uh, I, I love, I love sports. Um, I don't watch like league sports. I don't watch any of the pro sports. I mean, I will watch some women's tennis because I like it. And sometimes I watch the men's tennis because it's fun. And I watch the bigger tournaments, like the world cups and the Euro cups and stuff, but I'm not going to like, I, I don't really get fandom at that level. Fun fact, though, I was looking at photos of you online because I was just looking for, you know, background history and stuff. And did you know that there are a lot of great photos of you from Getty Images and they cost 575 bucks a pop for a large one? I, I did like not know you, that. You need to Google uh, yourself. <laughs> I have not been. Yeah. Oh, boy. And there yeah, are some really that, good yeah. ones, though. But I'm like, I'm not. I love you, Donna, but I'm not paying 575 no. bucks for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was one notable thing is like, as you go further in your career, you need to be able to have pictures of yourself doing your sport. But of course, like you're never training and then like holding up a camera at the same time while you're in the middle of an interval. So <laughs> it, you suddenly start to appreciate like, did anyone take any pictures of that event? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. And they're <laughs> going to cost you 575 bucks, <laughs> yeah, even if you're yeah, the person yeah. in the photo, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Donna, thank you so much for coming on today and for sharing your story with me and everyone who listens. Um, I really do miss you at fencing and I, I hope to see you back soon. Yeah. Come and come yeah, and fence, good. please. <laughs> okay. Not, yeah. Not within the period of time where I'm still having a creature inside. <laughs> um, but after that, yeah. after that, then we'll, then uh, it will be real tempting. Cause I do, I miss fencing you and, uh, and I love having these conversations, which I never get to have. Um, so yes only make me want to talk to you more and miss coming back to the piste and having like good side conversations. Awesome. I'm so looking forward to it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes, subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. Please rate, review, and share it too. For show notes, go to silvergoldwomen.com forward slash episode hyphen 12. Follow this podcast on Facebook and Twitter at silvergoldwomen. Music for this podcast was crafted by the extremely talented Outwild. He knows what I like. Every time I hear these beats, I dance in my seat. If you like his music, you can listen on SoundCloud at It's Outwild. Follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at It's Outwild. Until next time, play hard.
Play smart. 